My name's Dave, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see if you're new with us. Um, we are finishing up this morning a series that we've been in that we called Heart Matters, Lessons from the Life of David. And, and so far in this series, we have explored moments in David's life when he has shined, when he has been a soaring example of humility and courage and compassion and even faithfulness when life is hard. But this morning, we learn from David on the other end of the spectrum. This morning, we'll see David not in his finest hour, but in his absolute lowest moment. This morning, we'll explore a story where David is not the hero, but the villain. Today, we're going to discover together how a guy who was called a man after God's own heart can possibly get involved in adultery, deception, and murder. This morning, we are looking at 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. If you have your Bible, pull it out, open to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you're using one from the pew rack in front of you, it's on page 247. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about how sin gets its destructive hooks into our lives. You know, this morning, we sang about freedom, about being people who are free. And I don't know if you know this, but there are forces in this world that do not want you to be free, that want to rob you of the freedom and joy and blessing and peace that Jesus came to offer. And so today we're gonna to talk about what it looks like when sin gets its nasty claws into our lives, when our lives start to move away from following God, being who he longs for us to be, walking with him, walking his path. Here's how our story begins. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. See, our author very carefully sets the stage for this story by pointing out something in the very first verse that is off, that is just a little strange, and it's this very last phrase, but David remained in Jerusalem. See, this is not normal David behavior. This is not normal king behavior. Kings were supposed to lead their soldiers into battle. That was their role, their job, their calling. It's what David had always done. But right at the outset of this story, we're told that this whole awful, repulsive, depraved episode of David's life begins when David forgot who he was. When David, just for a moment, lost sight of God's vision for his life. When David stopped pursuing being the man that God had called him to be. See, our first lesson, friends, is that sin will get its destructive hooks in you when you stop pursuing God's vision for your life. You see, you don't have to be looking for sin. You don't have to be pursuing evil to stumble across it. You don't even have to be dabbling in things that are destructive. That is certainly a step in the process, but it's not the first step. The first step is not backwards motion. The first step is a lack of forward progress. You see, there's something about idleness. 
something about a lack of purpose or meaning or intentionality that just has a way of getting us into trouble. Have you ever been around children who have nothing to do? And we're all just big kids. Listen to this. Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. See, David's just bored. David's just sedentary. David's just hanging out at the palace with nothing to do because what he should have been doing, he wasn't doing because where he should have been out on the field with his men, he wasn't because the man God had called him to be, he'd stopped pursuing that just for a moment and the enemy takes advantage. Friends, let me ask you, do you have a picture of the person God is calling you to be and are you actively pursuing that picture? Do you have a sense of the life God wants you to live, of the, kind of, of the kind of husband or wife or friend or coworker or mom, dad, son, daughter, neighbor, coach, boss, that God is calling you to be? Do you have a vision for who God wants you to be in this world? And are you pursuing it actively? Are you engaged in the kingdom work God has gifted you for? Do you have a ministry in this world, to work for God, advance his plans and purposes? Do you know the battlefields God has called you to? And are you in the fight? Or like David, have you decided to sit this one out for a while? It's a dangerous place to be. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David remained in, Jeru in Jerusalem. And that's where trouble starts. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. At this point in the story, I want to pause for just a moment and think about Bathsheba. Because the story does not tell us a whole lot about her role in all of this. We do not know how this whole thing went down from her perspective. We do not hear about her feelings. We do not know if she was coerced, forced, pressured, or a willing participant. But here's what we do know. David was the king. David was the boss. David was the one with all the power and influence and position and popularity. And friends, I have to wonder how much pressure Bathsheba felt in this moment. Did she feel that she even had a choice? You see, friends, we are at a point in human history where once again, and I emphasize again because this is nothing new, we realize that power does not always bring out the best in people. That position and privilege easily turns to selfishness and entitlement and a loss of consideration for the other, especially those less fortunate or marginalized. You see, what David so easily forgot here is the only thing we're told about Bathsheba, the only thing we for certain know, and that's this. This is somebody's wife. 
This is somebody's daughter. This woman who he summons to meet his momentary sexual need is somebody's little girl. This is a human being. Sin will get its destructive hooks in you when your own wants, desires, entitlements, privileges blind you to the impact of your choices on those more vulnerable than yourself. You see, what David forgets here is that his job as the king, his mission as a man whose heart reflects the heart of God, is not to use those less powerful than him, but to serve and protect them. You know, when Jesus officially launched into his public ministry, he did it by going back to his hometown, by going back to the synagogue in Nazareth, and he stands up to preach. And he grabs the scroll of Isaiah and he opens it to this passage. And I want you to listen to the words Jesus chose to read. The very first public message we know of that Jesus preached. His inaugural ministry statement. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you see what Jesus says here? Because it is no small thing. And he says it over and over and over again throughout his ministry. And that's that the kingdom of God has always been about the poor and oppressed and vulnerable and marginalized people of the world. It's always been about people who have using what they have for people who have not. And the reason for that, friends is so very clear and simple and, on, and obvious if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a person of the gospel. The reason for that truth is because a God who had used all he had for those who have not. And that's you and me. And in this moment, David forgets this. He forgets who he is. He forgets his calling. He forgets what it means to use power and position and privilege in a way that honors God. And it suddenly becomes all about him, his wants, his desires, his needs. It's suddenly all for David about self-interest. May that never be true of us. May we never lose sight of who our God is and all that he's done for us. May we never make it about us. May we never ever in this church forget the marginalized and oppressed and poor and vulnerable. This is not who we are. But David lost sight. Then we read this line. David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Can I pause for just a minute and say something here? Sex matters. It is a very important and significant thing. And I, I know that there are a lot of different voices from a lot of different places in our world telling us that it doesn't that it's casual, that it's recreational, that your choices in this area of your life are not a big deal and will not have lasting impact. But friends, I believe the Bible is remarkably consistent on this. Sex is important. You see, we, 
We're tempted to believe, we want sometimes to believe that we can compartmentalize our lives. That we can take our physical lives and our emotional lives and our relational lives and our spiritual lives and our financial lives and our sexual lives and that we can live separate lives with them, that they can operate in isolation. But friends, here's the truth. Here's what the scriptures say. They can't and they don't because you were not created as a compartmentalized being. You were created as a holistic human being. So to think that how you handle the most intimate physical way of giving yourself to another person is not going to have deep, lasting, long impact, to think that how you engage sexually will not impact every other area of your life and relationships, friends, that's just foolish. And please hear my heart on that. I do not speak it in a condemning, condescending way. It is the truth of God offered with grace and patience and a hope that we would avoid the disastrous impact of sin in our lives, specifically in this area. You see, friends, we are all, every single person in this room, broken sexual people. But friends, the truth is, sex is important. God says it time and time and time again from so many different angles. It matters, it's significant. Be careful with this wonderfully precious area of your life. So young people, single people, hear it again, sex matters, handle it carefully, and not because it's bad or dirty, on the contrary, because it's so beautiful and wonderful and powerful. If you are struggling sexually, if you are dealing with secret temptations, get help. This is not an area to be lax about or to ignore. Married people, Sex matters. This is not an area of your life you can treat casually or flippantly. Do not be casual about the boundaries you draw for yourself outside of your marriage. Don't be fuzzy or hazy about this one. And don't also be casual about the importance of engagement inside your marriage. I know in this room there are Many different unique struggles and difficulties and challenges in this area. That's okay. Again, we're all broken sexual people. Work at those. Talk to your spouse about those. Get some counseling or outside help if you need to. But this is not an insignificant part of your relationship that can just be put on the shelf or ignored. Sex matters. We see it in this story. This entire thing starts with the mishandling of this very essential and crucial area of what it means to be a human being, the sexual area. And in church, we're not always that great at talking about it, but we're going to talk about it here. The story continues. Bathsheba goes home, some time passes, and then one day David gets word that she's pregnant. So in an attempt to cover up what he's done, David sends for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who's off fighting with the army, and he tells him, come home. And the plan that David has here is simple. Uriah will come home, he'll sleep with Bathsheba, and so when the baby's born, everyone will think it's his. Looks a lot like David, but no DNA testing in that day and age, so no one's the wiser. But Uriah throws a curveball at David, and he refuses to sleep with his wife. 
Listen to what he says. He says, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, David, I will not do such a thing. Oh, how the righteousness of another in the face of our sin cuts so deep. So David tries to get Uriah drunk so that his inhibitions will be down and maybe then he'll go home and sleep with Bathsheba. But that doesn't work either. And so we come to verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Do you know who Uriah the Hittite was? When David was a fugitive, when David was in the wilderness for years and years and years, being hunted by Saul, when David was running for his life, there was a group of friends who voluntarily came around him. They were called David's mighty men. And this was a group of guys that risked their lives to save David's life. One of those mighty men was Uriah the Hittite. And now David has murdered. He sent one of his most loyal and faithful friends to his death to cover up what he's done. This man trusts David so much that he carries his own death warrant back to the commander with him and he does not even know it. You see, friends, this is how corrupt sin is. This is how sin works. It desperately does not want to be discovered. And it will do anything. It will do anything it has to to hide. Sin is like mold. It thrives in the dark, damp, undiscovered places of your life. But you bring it out into the light, bring it out into plain view, and all of a sudden it cannot survive. Sin will get its destructive hooks in you when you choose cover-up over confession. You see, if only at this point David had just stopped, if only in this moment he just grabbed his buddy Uriah and said, friend, I am so so sorry. I've made a terrible mistake and I must beg for your forgiveness. Would that have been easy? No. Would there have been consequences and fallout? Certainly there would have, but it would have changed the course of David's life. It would have put him back on a road towards being right with the Lord. It would have spared Uriah. It would have changed the course of history for Bathsheba. So many rights could have made wrong. If only in this moment, David would have stopped the cover up and simply confessed but David can't do it sin will do everything it can to prevent you from doing it and once again David chooses cover-up over confession and because of that he'll now compound adultery with murder and all for what to keep his dirty little secret to protect his precious reputation, to continue to hide from the truth of what he's done. Friends, are you hiding from 
anything these days? Got any secrets in your life that you're hoping and praying and working to keep covered up? You see, friends, we are masters of hiding. It started in the garden, and we're still good at it today. One of the areas I think we're especially keen on hiding in the church is in this area, in the area of sexual sin and sexual struggles. And if I can be honest with you this morning, I have to say I do not think we've done a good job of fostering a culture where people feel safe to wrestle in this area, to struggle in this area, to come forward and be honest and open and come out of hiding. Friends, if we long for healing, if we do not want sin to have destructive power in the lives of people, especially in their sexual lives, we must become a place where it's okay to say, guess what, you struggle sexually, me too. This is a safe place to talk about it. This is a safe place to be honest. This is a safe place to be real. Let me just say, if that's you today, and by the way, if that's you today, you're probably one of about three quarters of the people in here, so don't feel alone. If that's you today, there are places that are safe. We have a Celebrate Recovery group that meets here on Tuesday nights, one of the safest places you'll ever be. There are four, three, four to three groups for both men and women all over town that you can get into where you can talk about sexual addiction, sexual struggles and temptations, sexual failures. You can get help. There's information online, just Google 423. There's some cards in the restrooms. The longer you hide, the longer you allow your sin to stay in the dark, the longer you choose cover up over confession, the more power of destruction you give that sin in your life. And when it's all said and done, Uriah is killed. And then we read this. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. Whew. That was a close one. You see, David thinks he's done it. He thinks he's gotten away with this deal and nobody will ever know. David thought the great danger in all of his sin was that somebody might Find out. But friends, when sin takes root in your life, somebody finding out is not the greatest danger. The greatest danger is that nobody will find out. But luckily for David, luckily for you and me, somebody always finds out. Somebody always knows. You see, there's this closing statement at the end of chapter one. It's a turning point in this story. And personally, I think it might just be one of the most understatements in the entire Bible. After all this has occurred and David thinks he's gotten away with adultery and deceit and deception and murder, the author tells us this, this one simple phrase, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. John Ortberg says, David covered this one up from just about everybody. He could scam the court. He could fool the army. He could kill Uriah. He could marry Bathsheba. He could adopt the baby. And he could con the whole nation. But there is one who sees everything with utter moral clarity. And he will call us all into account. And his justice will not be evaded. And he will not be taken in by even the cleverest of cover-ups. And now... We see the grace of God in this story. 
the, the grace of God's truth, the grace of God's light shining into dark, hidden places. Chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one that had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Sin will get its destructive hooks in you when there is no one able or willing to speak hard truth into your life. Friends, if you want to be a person formed into the image and likeness of Jesus, if you want to be a person of whom it is said she or he was a woman after God's own heart, there have got to be some people in your life who really know you on a deep level. I'm not talking about casual friendships or surface level church small groups. I'm talking about people who know your secrets and struggles and challenges and temptations and they must be free and willing to speak truth, even hard, uncomfortable truth into your life. Friends, this kind of community, these kind of relationships have always been at the very center of what a Jesus following community was all about. Take it all the way back to the first century, take it all the way back into the New Testament and this is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus with other people. In the 1700s, there was a revival that swept across England and people were coming to Christ and lives were being changed. And was, this was largely due to a movement that was called Methodism. It was founded by two brothers, John and Charles Wesley, and they were undoubtedly very gifted men, good preachers and great leaders. But at the core of their ministry, at the core of their philosophy was this unswerving commitment to deep, vulnerable, transparent, bold, challenging relationships. And when the method, what the Methodists would do is they had this method, thus their name, of putting people into these little groups, these small groups of believers. They called them bands. Bands of believers. B-A-N-D-S. And everyone was expected to be in one of these bands. And I just want you to listen to some of the entrance questions. These are like the admittance questions. If you wanted to join this movement, if you wanted to get into one of these little groups, here are just a few of the questions they would ask you as sort of like a, an entrance prerequisite. Hey, you want to join one of our groups? Great, we'd love to have you. A few questions for you. Do you desire to be told of your faults? Like, does that float your boat? Do you desire to be told of all your faults in a plain and straightforward manner? Next question. Do you desire that every one of us should tell you from time to time whatsoever is in his heart concerning you? Question nine. Consider. Like the question starts with like a, an exclamation. Consider. Stop. Think this through. 
Think about what you're signing up for here. Consider, do you desire we should tell you whatsoever we think, whatsoever we feel, whatsoever we hear concerning you? Do you desire that in doing this, we should come as close as possible, that we should cut to the quick and search your heart to the bottom? If all yes is so far, final question. Is it your desire and design to be on this and all other occasions entirely open so as to speak everything that is in your heart without exception, without disguise, and without reserve? Imagine a community like that. Imagine that level of honesty and openness and transparency and truth and challenge. You see, God sent Nathan to David to speak some hard but desperately needed truth into his life. And friends, it's no accident that in Hebrew the name Nathan means gift. Because if you have a friend like Nathan, you have a gift. Do you have a friend like Nathan? One or two? Ideally, at least one outside of your marriage. A friend you can trust with even the darkest parts of you. A friend who loves God. A friend who loves you enough to have the hard conversations that you so desperately need them to have with you. Are you a Nathan? Are you willing to be a Nathan? Because friends, being a Nathan sounds good in this moment sitting right here, but being a Nathan is not fun and it is definitely not easy. Imagine for a moment standing in front of the king, the man with all the power and authority. See, this is, there's no judicial system here. There's no branches of government. There's no separation of power. There are no checks and balances. David was it. He had ultimate and complete authority. And this king has proven already to be a liar, deceiver, adulterer, and murderer. This is a ruthless man who has already killed to cover up his sin. And now Nathan is about to confront him, show him the very sin he's already murdered to conceal. One writer calls this one of the most courageous statements in all of Scripture. I wonder if he paused. I wonder if there was a gulp. I wonder how much certainty... He spoke these words with, we do not know, but Nathan looks right at David and says, you are the man. You see, we all want friends that will say, you're the man. We love that. You're the man. You're the man. The worship pastor at the church I served before here and I used to, after every Sunday, like we'd come up to each other and we'd say, I'd say, dude, you killed it. You're the man. He'd say, no, you're the man. You're the man. We did this, you're the man thing. And we just kind of did it. And it became kind of a joke. And it was this idea. And the idea was, man, it takes a lot out of you to preach and lead worship. And sometimes you just need encouragement. So we constantly say, you're the man. You're the man. So we love to hear you're the man. And you're the man's a good thing. Or you're the woman, right? That's a good thing to say to someone. We should say that more often, actually. But you know what we sometimes need to hear? Not you're the man, but you are the man. Sin will get its destructive hooks in you when there was no one able or willing to speak hard truth into your life. The story continues, and Nathan tells David that as a result of his sin, there are going to be some pretty lofty consequences He's actually speaking for God. God is now speaking directly to David through Nathan. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Middle of verse 8. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? 
You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Friends, sin will get its destructive hooks in you when you fail to think about the consequences of your choices. I, it never ceases to amaze me. It, it baffles me, friends. And it baffles me as I look at the lives of others and then it baffles me sometimes when I look at my own life. But I'm baffled at our inability to extrapolate our choices. To, to, to look at a choice and say, if I make this choice, what is going to happen? What are the ripple effects? What are the potential outcomes if I choose A or B or C? We can be so amazingly short-sighted But friends, let me challenge you. Think about and get real clear on this. Learn from David on this one. Please stop and think about what the consequences will be if you decide to engage in or continue to engage in or continue to cover up that sin that so desperately tempts you. This week, because of this sermon, also because of some other things that are happening in the lives of people around me, I spent some time just pondering and thinking about the results of me failing in the same area that David fails. What if I made a choice like David? What if I mishandled this area of my life? Here's just a short list. It would damage my intimacy with God and leave me with feelings of guilt and hypocrisy that I can't even imagine. It would destroy the ministry I've, called, I've been called to and believe wholeheartedly that God's created me for. It would betray your trust. It would ravage the faith and trust of the one person I love more than anyone else in this world. That's my wife. It would pass on a legacy that I cannot imagine to my children, whom I love so much. And that's just the short list. The list could go on and on. Have you thought about your list? Have you thought about the long-term consequences for the sin that you're tempted by pondering that you're currently engaged in? Have you thought about the road that it's taking you down? Have you asked yourself, is it worth it? Because here's the truth, and it's the same for you as it is for me. When I think about that list, I get real clear on the kind of man that I want to be, on the kind of man that I do not want to be. And I get real clear on the boundaries that I will draw. And I get real clear on where I'll fight for honesty and health and openness and transparency. Friends, sin will get its destructive hooks in you when you fail to think about the consequences of your choices. Do think about the consequences of your choices. Stop, pause, consider. Finally, Sin will get its destructive hooks in you when you fail to be fueled by the grace of God in your life. You see, one of the things this story forces us to see and one of the questions it forces us to ask is simply this. Is this really the guy? I mean, David is the arguably predominant hero of the Old Testament. This is the guy who of whom Jesus says, I am a son of David. This is a guy who was called a man after God's own heart. This is like the person that churches do sermon series about now. He steals his good friend's wife. 
He lies and deceives. He eventually murders. He won't even confess of his own volition. He has to be confronted. Friends, is this, is, is this the best we can come up with? You see, one of the mistakes we often make is that we come to the scriptures and we say, who can we emulate? Who can we look to? And then we kind of look and we say, man, if I could just live like David lived, if I could just be the kind of person he was, if I could only have the faith of Moses, if I could only like, be as eloquent or knowledgeable about the things of God like Paul was, and we, we think, man, if I could do it right, if I could avoid the mistakes that David made, then God will love me, then God will accept me, then maybe God can use me. We often read the Bible this way, and friends, it is not the way we're called to read the scriptures. The point of the Bible, time and time again, is not, look at these guys, they're so amazing, you should do what they did, or don't make the mistakes they made so that God will love you and accept you. No, the point of the Bible, time and time again, is God works with and gives his grace to people who don't deserve it, don't even seek it, and don't appreciate it once they give it. The point of the Bible is the very best people who have ever lived have not and will not and cannot overcome their own sin and flaws and self-centeredness on their own. Not even David could do it, and neither can you. Neither can I. We all desperately need the grace and forgiveness of God. He is our only hope. If David couldn't overcome the sin of his life and his heart on his own, do you think you can? Have you been trying? How's it going? See, the message of the scriptures is we cannot be fueled by behavior change. The message of the, the, the point of this message is not, man, you've got some sin in your life. You've got some struggles in your life. Maybe even sexual sin, maybe even sexual struggles. Now you go home and try harder. Vehemently, like you're gonna lock it down. You're gonna do your best. And by the way, if you do that today, you will leave here and you will go home and you'll do better for a few weeks. And then that sin will creep back in. Why? Because you're a broken, fallen human being and you cannot do it on your own. Friends, the message is not try harder. The message is rely more fully on the grace and love of Jesus Christ. You see, it's not you can do it if you try harder. It's, it's if you understand how loved you are, how accepted you are, all that God has for you, and you live from that, then God can do it in you. God can do it through you. And that's why every week we come here and we declare that the only power strong enough to overcome the power of sin and death in our world and in our lives and in our very own minds and hearts is the power that we declare through communion and the Lord's Supper, through the bread and through the cup, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We declare it again. God, we so desperately need that grace. That grace to forgive us of the sin that we've engaged in and that grace to fuel us with the power to fight and overcome that sin as we move forward. So I'll say it to you again this morning. Do you have some sin that you need to offer to God today? Come to these tables, but do not come with a promise to God that you will try harder and that you will do better. Come to God with a confession that you cannot do it and that you desperately need his help. Because guess what, friends? Again today, his grace is sufficient and his grace is available for you. Grace to forgive. Grace to empower you to move forward and overcome that sin in your life. So I'm gonna invite the worship team up. I'm gonna pray and then when you're ready, come to the table, take the bread, take the cup, receive the elements when you're ready, receive them on your own and we'll worship as we close. Father, this morning, there's so much in this story. 
There's so much in this story that can feel condemning and hopeless. And yet over it all, God, is your grace. Over it all is this message that you never give up on people. That you didn't give up on David. That even after this moment, there was more for him to do. There was still a life for him to live. So God, remind us of that truth. Remind us of your great love for us in spite of our fallenness and brokenness and sin. Remind us of your hope. Show us the path forward. Strengthen us to make the decisions and choices that we need to make to live in the freedom that you offer. That's our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.